Hello and welcome to Haunted Hometowns, your true crime paranormal podcast with me, Blake Lambert Hack. It is finally 2024. I just got back to New York City from a trip to Minneapolis and Denver. I got to see my family for a cute little Christmas moment. I spent New Year's Eve in Denver to see my best friend Tyre back up sing for a band, though he also had his little Madonna solo moment, so I was living for that. It's funny because I got to see my immediate family, my parents and my brother, and then I also saw uh, Ty and my friend Dana, and all of whom live in the Chicagoland area, if not in Chicago, and I did not see them in Chicago. I saw my parents and my brother in Minneapolis, because my brother is working in Minneapolis right now, though I think he's moving back to Chicago soon, because in Minneapolis, I got to... He's a zoologist. We've talked about it on the podcast before, and he works with dolphins and pinnipeds, but I got to pet a dolphin, and it was so sweet, and the dolphin was so smooth and just beautiful, and it was a very special moment, and I thank him so much for that. I hope to, you know, swim with the dolphin one day. I don't know if that'll ever come true because I also would love to hug a tiger. I would love to, you know, ride the back of a kangaroo. There are just like things, like cuddle with a polar bear. There are just things I would love to do with nature that, you know, probably will never come true. But petting a dolphin, that's the right track. I'm headed the right direction. So we'll see. But Minneapolis was really cute, went to a brewery. It was too cold out. Minneapolis was far too cold, but it was a cute little moment. And then in Denver, Denver was really beautiful. It was like 50 degrees, even though there was snow on the ground. Living for that. I personally am not a Denver person. For everybody who lives in Denver, good for you. Good on you. You must love the outdoors. Love it. Not my cup of tea, especially on New Year's Eve when... After the band wrapped up and everything, it was like 1.30, and we were all like, let's go party, it's 1.30, New Year's Eve, and we went to go out, and everything closed at 2. Everything. Every single bar. And I'm like, you're not even going to stay open later on New Year's Eve? And look, I'm, I live in New York City, the band lives in Chicago mostly, Chicago, New York, everything's open till 4 or 5. I'm exaggerating by saying everything, but a lot of places are open to 4 or 5 a.m. So it is really jarring to go to a place, especially a large city like Denver. I use the term large loosely, but to go to a city like Denver and everything closes at 2, I'm like, uh, what? Okay. (laughs) But it was cute. It was fun. I got to, you know, hang out with friends, breweries, band shows. What else did I do? I saw the color purple, cried. But I knew I was going to cry at the color purple because the song I'm Here, no matter who sings it, no matter I see it on stage, listen to it while I'm grocery shopping, seeing it in the movie theater, I cry. I'm Here is one of my favorite songs of all time. Cynthia Revo, Jennifer Hudson, Fantasia, everybody singing that song, just like, weep. I weep. It's so fucking good. But yeah, lovely holiday season, but... We are back to our regular scheduled programming here on Haunted Hometowns. So get ready for an infamous murder case. A house that 
has been around for centuries, a house that's been haunted for over a century. I'm talking about Cherry Hill Farm in Albany, New York, or near Albany, New York, upstate New York. But for this story, we're going back to the beginning of May, 1827, near Albany, New York, in a historic house called Cherry Hill Farm. A man named Jesse Strang made his way to a gunsmith and purchased a rifle for $15. Now I understand it's 1827. I understand $15 is a lot in 1827. But if we're purchasing guns, the price needs to be higher. I'm sorry, the price needs to be higher. And these days, a lot more needs to go in. Background checks. Receipts. (laughs) What is that? Salt Lake City quote that just happened for the finale. It applies to everything, really. If you haven't been watching Salt Lake City, Housewife Salt Lake City, the newest season is insane. Yeah, Heather... (laughs) Heather stands up and she's slapping her... She's like clapping the back of her hand at somebody and she just goes, receipts, proof, timeline, screenshots. And you know what? That's exactly what we need for gun... Purchasing a gun. We need receipts. We need... Receipts that you have taken lessons to use a gun safely. We need proof that you're not going to murder somebody after buying a gun. We need a timeline, what the gun's going to be used for. Screenshots of, you know, people in your life that say, yeah, this guy can have a gun. We trust him to have a gun. We need it all. We need it all. So that's my two little cents on... uh, gun ownership and, you know, the NRA and such. But $15. Jesse bought a rifle for $15 in 1827. Work. And he works on a farm, so it makes sense. Uh, Jesse was hired as a uh, farmhand. So it makes sense that, you know, maybe he has to shoot off or scare some wolves in the woods. Wolves in the woods. Um, Or maybe he needs to kill a pig. Who knows? But... Once he arrived back to the farm, he hid the rifle in the loft of the shed on the property. And in the following days, Jesse took lead from objects found around the farm and carved the lead into balls for the rifle. Right. It's 1827. We don't have bullets at this point. We have little lead balls, little tiny little lead balls that I would lose daily if, you know, I was trying to shoot something and use little balls. Uh, Yeah, this is before the Civil War. Think about that. And taking lead from around the farm, you really got to make do in 1827. I'm sure they had nothing. I'm sure, like, this is a rich family who owns this house. So the family has a lot, but these are hired hands. They have probably a sack on their back and that's it. So if you're going to, if you need bullets and you want to be inconspicuous, I guess rummaging the farm for lead and then making your own bullets is a good way to go around may 7th 1827 jesse made his way into town at dusk to run some errands and when he returned to cherry hill he made his way to the southeast kitchen window where he saw elise whipple love that name elise whipple she was smoking in the corner while henrietta patrick maria van hensler and a, quote, kitchen wench, unquote, were sitting by the fire in the kitchen. So, you know, a little 
cute little women's moment. Women's moment? What am I saying? Like, all the women in the house were hanging out. Love. I'm sure they were gossiping. Sure, they were kicking. I love that. I wish I was there. I want to hear the tea that Elise Whipple is spilling to Henrietta Patrick. What has she got to say? You know, rich people in town, talking in a kitchen by a fire. Love it. Also, I use uh, Kitchen Wench only because it was, you know, that's how it was quoted in the article or confession that I will talk about later. But they were all sitting by the fire. Jesse proceeded to the southwest corner of the house where he saw Catherine Van Rensler sitting in her bedroom sewing. He then made his way to the hayloft where he could see into John Whipple's room. Really quickly, 1827, there really wasn't much more to do than smoke, sit by fire, talk, and sew. Or like write a letter. That's about it. When the sun goes down, and like sex. That's it. There isn't much else to do. John Whipple's in his room. We don't really know what he's doing. He's sitting at his desk, but Jesse couldn't make out who it was really, but someone was in Mr. Whipple's room. We now know it was John Whipple in his own bedroom because like who else would be there? But at the time, Jesse didn't know who was in the room. He just saw a man sitting at Mr. Whipple's desk. Jesse moved to the stable to retrieve the rifle. He hid And with the rifle, he then moved to the northwest corner of the house. And under the cover of Cherry Trees, which is probably why the farm is called Cherry Hill, he removed his boots and socks, put his socks in his boots, then wrapped the boots in his peacoat. He then slipped on socks that were stashed under his pillow. He hid his coat and boots by a fence then made his way into the courtyard. He grabbed a wood box and placed it next to the shed. The four-foot box allowed Jesse to climb onto the roof of the shed, where he walked to the south end of the shed and peered into John Whipple's window. The curtain in the window had been rolled up, showing Mr. Whipple sitting at a small table and his son, Abraham, sitting across the table in a low rocking chair. John Whipple was about nine feet from the window, and Jesse believed at this distance he could shoot John Whipple without injuring his son, Abraham. Jesse took aim at John's left underarm, and when Jesse could not see Abraham, he fired the rifle through the bedroom window. John Whipple shouted in pain while Jesse took four steps back, slipping and falling off the roof of the shed. Jesse sprung up, ran to the fence, tossed his boots and rifle over the fence, then climbed over himself. Then climbed over himself. He grabbed his belongings and ran to a ravine in the forest where he stamped the rifle in the sandy mud. He then swapped his socks out and put his boots back on. He took the murder socks. (laughs) I'm calling them murder socks because I don't really know the difference between the socks he used to kill and the socks he didn't or why he switched his socks. But he then took the murder socks and ran to another ravine where he stamped the socks in the mud in that ravine. He continued to run 
out of sight, away from the farm, until he saw people making their way toward Cherry Hill. Jesse followed the few men to the house, where the kitchen wench threw the door open and said, quote, Is this you, doctor? Unquote. The doctor answered yes, and she let all the men in, including Jesse. They discovered John Whipple's body at the top of the stairs in the hallway, Abraham standing over his dead father. So, up front, I'm already letting you know who the murderer is, and I'm letting you know who the murderee is. Jesse Strang murdered John Whipple. The question is, why? Why did he murder John Whipple? So let's go back a bit. Cherry Hill, a a historic house in Albany, New York, built in 1787, which is really crazy, honestly, because the house is still standing today. It's still in good condition today. It's a decent-sized house. So... In 1787, to build a house like that, that's good carpentry, right? But it was built by Colonel Philip Killen von Rensselaer for his wife, Maria Sanders. And the the Van Rensselaer family were early Dutch settlers in New York and became powerful landowners, specifically in Albany. Because remember, before New York city was called New York City. It was called New Amsterdam because before the English took it, the Dutch, you know, owned a lot of land in the area. So that's why, you know, the Dutch moved north and went to Albany because they owned roughly a million acres, one million acres in in the 1700s, which is nuts. They became one of the wealthiest families in America. Naturally so. Even today, owning land is still one of the most profitable things you could own. Eventually, Philip began building a farmstead on the land. So by 1790, the farm was about a thousand acres. Huge, huge farm. Of course he needed all kinds of help. 1798, Philip died but left most of the money and property to his wife and children. So they continued to live in the house and work on the farm until uh, Philip's wife Maria passed away in 1824. Now, with that being said, there were many family members that lived in the house, uh, Chili, Chili, <laughs> Chili Hill Farm, Cherry Hill Farm, Uh, Elise Lansing was the granddaughter of Philip's sister. So Elise came to live at Cherry Hill Farm when her parents died. She lived with her grandmother and her grandmother's brother. Elise was 14 years old when she married John Whipple, who then moved into Cherry Hill. John Whipple was 23 years old when he married Elise. So, you know, almost a 10-year difference between them. And um, 10 years is not that big a deal, honestly, except the fact that she was 14. You know, if she was 24 and he was 34 and they got married, it may seem a little less scandalous, but 23 and 14. And I understand that, you know, 1800s, it was acceptable at the time, but it's still wild. 
a wild age to get married. 14, 23 is a wild age to get married. 23 is a wild age to get married. 14, crazy. When it comes to Jesse Strang, no one knows too much about his life before working at Cherry Hill Farm. What we do know is that Jesse was born into poverty and at one point was married with children. Though he deserted his first wife and two kids and moved out west doing odd jobs under the name Jesse Orton. He then moved back to New York in 1826, making his way to Albany, which is where Jesse first met Elise, and they met at a bar. Her beauty caught his eye, and when he asked around about her, Jesse found out she was married to John Whipple. They did not speak that night, but... Only a few weeks later, Jesse would find himself a live-in job for $13 a month at Cherry Hill Farm, where Elise happens to live. So it's a little suspicious. Suspicious. He's going to see this woman that he thinks is beautiful at this bar, not talk to her, but ask around and be like, who's that lady? And everyone's like, leave her alone. She's married. Don't get involved. And instead, and he's like, okay, sure. But what does he do? Get a job at the same house she lives in. Men are wild. They be acting a fool. A fool. $13 a month too. I want to say in 2018, I was working a restaurant job and making $13 an hour. And they were making $13 a month. So to spend $15 on a rifle back then, I get it. I get it. But it is crazy. So Jesse is not living in the house. Obviously, he works for them. So he's living in some, you know, out house. I don't want to say guest house because it was definitely not a guest house situation. But like the barn. And which... In New York, is I would never. If I'm going to be a helping hand and work on a farm and do that, I'm going south or I'm going west where it's warm and probably west because in the south it gets a little too hot over the summer and I'm just sweating my ass off when I'm trying to go to sleep, which is never fun. But I cannot imagine living in New York in the winter in the 1700s or even 1800s where like... You got to make a fire to stay warm. Sounds horrific. Anyway, it didn't take long for the two, Jesse and Elise, to start showing their affection to one another. There was one conversation between the two while they were collecting nuts that made Jesse feel like Elise was interested in him. And not long after that, she asked Jesse to write her a letter. He was originally fearful that she would show her husband the letter and get him fired, but he wrote it anyway, and they started a secret letter love affair, which I love. This is screaming 1800s. (laughs) Imagine going up to somebody and being like, hey, write me a letter, and then walking away. It's like, no, bitch, you write me a letter. If you like me, you write me a letter. How about that? That's today's standards. It's like, And by letter, I mean text me. Like going up to somebody in the bar and be like, hey, text me. It's like, no, bitch, you text me. And then we'll get this going. 
But I love that. <laughs> I love that she's like, I'm a lady and I'm of upper class. You write me a letter. So they have this secret love letter affair going on because they can't really be seen talking to each other because then it would be extremely scandalous. So in the letters, Elise expressed that she never believed in love until meeting Jesse. And that if he were to ever leave Cherry Hill, he must take her with him. Now, that's a very intense... (laughs) That language is very intense for just meeting somebody. And not just meeting somebody, but barely talking to them. I love you. I didn't believe in love until I saw it. I'm like, girl, take a breather, please. If you don't, I understand if you don't love your husband, like you were 14 when you got married. I get it. But (laughs) I don't think Jesse's the one girl. Jesse suggested running away to Ohio and getting eloped. But Elise was worried about the money they would need to start anew. Because if she did run away, she'd be absolutely cut off from her fortune. I can guarantee you that. And he doesn't have any money. He's a farmhand. So after a couple months of passing letters, Elise suggested they take the life of John Whipple so they would have enough money to move and get married. So (laughs) immediately immediately Elise is like kill my husband he has money Elise had always expressed the death of her husband like she had always wanted to kill her husband or not kill her husband I guess I should say she'd always hoped that her husband would die so she didn't have to be with him but in November 1826 it was the first time she suggested that someone should murder him She told Jesse to hire Irishmen to do it, or if Jesse wanted to do it himself, Elise would get him a pistol to kill John. But right out the gate, Jesse replied, he's like, no, I'm not killing your husband. Are you nuts? Like, that's not happening. It was a blunt no. He would not take the life of her husband. He said that he would work himself to death to support her, but he would never take the life of her innocent husband, which, you know, we love. We know that's not what happens, but we love that because integrity. And you're right, John Whipple, well, he's innocent at this point. She just doesn't want to be with her husband. There's no indication that he's abusive. There's no indication that he doesn't love her. There's there's no indication that he is doing anything wrong. She's just like, I love you, Jesse. I don't love him, so you should kill him. It's like, girl, please. Elise stated that if Jesse truly loved her, he would kill John and take her away. If they had just run away, she couldn't bear the thought that John would marry again and everything Elise owned would be the new wife's. Now, you can't have it both ways. You can't want your husband dead, but then also be mad that if you ran away with a man that he would get remarried to another one. Like, usually we hear this from men. Usually the story goes, this man wants to be with this mistress, but also doesn't want to leave his wife. He wants best of both worlds, but it's like, sir, you don't get that. Like, that's not... No. 
but this is like it's it's kind of shocking to see it from a woman's standpoint like elise being like i don't want to divorce or run away from my husband but i also want to be with you so how do we make this work we should just kill my husband it's like no girl so because they couldn't really agree on what to do they just dropped the topic until about late january when elise called jesse into the kitchen and told him that john struck her jesse would later claim that he never saw any proof of john hitting elise but that incident is is what led elise asking jesse to find her poison so she could kill her husband so i'm not saying like nobody knows for sure if john hit elise or abused elise or if it was a one-time thing or a several times thing or a no time thing we just don't know but elise is claiming she was hit by him Because it is the early 1800s, clothing back then for women was very buttoned up. I'm sure if he did hit her, it was in a place that no one would see it. So even though Jesse never saw physical evidence of physical abuse, that doesn't mean it didn't happen. But I do kind of like, in a weird way, I do like that she's taking accountability and she's like, you know what? I'll kill kill my husband. It's like, yeah, girl, if you really want him dead, stop outsourcing. Just do it yourself. Like, make it happen. So she did ask Jesse for poison. Jesse, again, refused to help Elise kill her husband, which made Elise very agitated. She threatened to kill herself if he did not find her poison, which... See, this is Elise, 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 Elise. Girl. Why does somebody have to die? If it's not your husband, why are you threatening to kill yourself? Why does somebody have to die? It's not that serious. I know it feels serious, girl, and I know you're really young. But it's, please, please. But because she kept threatening herself and she kept begging Jesse, Jesse finally broke down and told Elise that if she was able to bring him $300, he would travel to Montreal and hire someone to kill John Whipple. $300 in the early 1800s is so much money. I'm going to venture to say, because like the calculator doesn't go back to 1827, I'm going to venture to say that it's over $10,000. 10 of today's money, $10,000. Because, you know, in the United States, the calculator goes back to, like, 1913. And in 1913, $300 is, like, over 9000 today. So it's a lot of fucking money. And rightfully so. If you're going to murder somebody, you better be paying somebody thousands of dollars to murder somebody. Or even millions. Like, come on. Elise agreed to that she was like i will get you your 300 dollars to go kill my husband but shortly after 
Elise came down with smallpox. So she was in no state to really be killing anybody, no state to raising money to kill somebody. She just was, it's like, girl, people were dying of smallpox back then. You got to get yourself better. And she did. She's one of the, you know, few cases, I want to say, that she didn't die from smallpox. So, But when she did get better, she told Jesse that it would be impossible to raise $300 without John noticing. Which it's true. John takes care of everything. It's the early 1800s. He's in charge of the money. He's in charge of work. He He's just... There's nothing Elise could do without him really knowing. But he did travel a lot for work. So whenever he was out of town, this is when her and Jesse could have like their little fling or whatever. But there really is no way of raising $300 and John not noticing. Or if you were to do it, it would have had to be over a span of years where it's like she pockets a few dollars every month or something. So instead... Jesse went to the drugstore in March 1827, and he purchased arsenic for the purpose of killing rats on a farm, which was extremely common at the time, especially because you're on a farm, you got rats, you got mice, you got other rodents, and they just can't be eating your crops and shit. So nobody really batted an eye. They were just like, you need arsenic for rats? Here. Great. Moving on. Now, the issue with poisoning is if you're going to poison somebody, how much do you give them to kill them? But not too much where people would suspect a poisoning, but not too little where the person ingesting it suspects something. Like, where is that balance? Because everybody's body is different. So... Girl, I didn't. I don't know how to kill people, but maybe a teaspoon for a kid would kill them instantly. But a teaspoon for a three hundred pound man would just be like a little tickle in your stomach. Like who? I, who knows? Who knows? There isn't really anything to guide you in the right direction. So that's why poisoning is extremely difficult, and the serial killers who get away with it and do it well. I think it's just luck, honestly. They like were lucky to get it right the first time, so they just continued doing the same amount, but in this instance, Elise tried putting a little arsenic in John's tea in early March, but it didn't seem to have any effect on John. So she tried again a couple days later, but again there was no effect. So from my understanding, it would take a lot of arsenic to kill someone instantly. Usually in arsenic deaths, it's like a slow burn over time, like a little each day, so that A, the person doesn't suspect anything, B, because it takes so much arsenic, like, I'm again, I'm not a scientist or have the exact dosage for anyone thinking about using it, but because these two failed attempts, Jesse goes to an enslaved woman on the property named Dinah Jackson, and he asks her if she would kill John for $500. So at this point, 
let's put this in perspective. Elise and Jesse are essentially desperate. They've asked so many people to kill John. It's comical at this point. It's they can't they can't seem to do it themselves. So they're outsourcing, but the outsourcing isn't going well. They're spending money that they probably shouldn't be on failed attempts. It's just hilarious, honestly. And then they go to this enslaved woman and it's like, please, Dinah, can you please murder John Whipple for $500? $500 in 1827 would be well over $15,000 today. And he's offering it to an enslaved woman who could potentially buy her freedom. Like, buying freedom, like that process became more rare as time went on. But at the time, a lot of people would buy their freedom. So Dinah took the night to think it over. And in the morning, she went to Jesse, or actually Jesse went to her and asked her again, like, will you kill John Whipple for $500? And Dinah told him, quote, no, that I won't. I won't send my soul to hell for all the world. If I should do it, I should never take any comfort after it, unquote. So I truly respect Dinah, because if I was in her shoes, I don't know if I could say the same. Like, if I'm enslaved and I have the potential to be free to do whatever the hell I want, go wherever I want, like, I probably would take it. But I also stand with her in the sense that, like, why would I kill this man? He hasn't done anything wrong to me. Like, John Whipple doesn't own the house. He's just living in the house. So it's not like it's John Whipple's enslaved person. It's the Van Ressler's enslaved woman so i i good for you dinah i don't blame you at all i just don't know if i could say the same dinah's better than i am the other tricky thing here is that if murder was suspected they probably would immediately point at dinah because that's just how things were back then it's like a white woman could never but a black enslaved woman, yeah, she did it. Just like the Salem Witch Trials. It's like they immediately pointed, the the initial finger was pointed at a person of color. So it's like, Dinah was also thinking ahead. She was smart. Jesse and Elise are so obsessed at this point, they continue talks of killing John through March. And at the beginning of April, Elise began to press Jesse more and more to kill her husband. Remember, they met each other in early autumn, late summer of 2020 or 1826. We are now in March, April, 1827. We're not even a year in. Elise is claiming she's in love with Jesse and they're trying to kill her husband. Six months later of knowing each other. It's crazy. On the first Thursday of April, 1827, a hired man named George Wilson, he had to leave for a bit. And George and Jesse, being the hired hands, they shared a room. So it so happened 
that John Whipple had been out of town for work at the same time George Wilson left, probably to visit family or what. So Elise and Jesse agreed that Elise would spend the night, wink, wink, in Jesse's room. Spend the night in Jesse's room. However, Elise was unable to make it that night. But the following morning, when Jesse made Elise a fire in her bedroom, she leaned in and whispered to Jesse to meet her in the hall. She led him to an unoccupied room down the hall from her room. There, it was the first time they had sex. Or, quote, criminal intercourse, unquote. Which is how Jesse explained it. Criminal intercourse. I think it's fucking hilarious. It's true. She's married. And so it is criminal. Extremely criminal in 1800s. But criminal intercourse is such a funny statement. About two weeks later, Jesse and Elise took a secret trip up to Troy, New York, just north of Albany. However, an intense storm rolled in, drenching Elise and Jesse, so they stopped at a tavern for the night. It was the first time they slept in the same bed together. Like, they are wildin'. This is scandalous, extreme scandal. If anybody caught them, it would be overdone. You're gone. Like, a married woman sleeping in the same bed as a farmhand? (gasps) Stop the world. It didn't say if they had sex this time or not. It just said that they slept in the same bed. But, you know, of course, I'm sure things happened. After they returned to Cherry Hill, they continued talks of running away to Montreal and then to Ohio. But the more Elise considered it, the more she could not bear leaving her son. Which, you know, is the right parent thing to do. Not to leave your kids. So they shifted back to murder. You know, for a little bit, for a month, they were like, maybe we don't need to murder John. Maybe we should just run away. And then they're like, oh, well. I don't think that would work. Let's just murder him. By May, Elise had given Jesse money to purchase a rifle. So on the 6th of May, which is my birthday, ooh, ooh, ow, ow, Elise told Jesse that he would have to practice with the rifle before he attempted to murder John. She proceeded to give him panes of glass that they, I guess, just had laying around the farm as if they wouldn't need the glass in the future. I don't know why there was like panes, window glasses laying around, but I guess they had some extras because Jesse took them into the woods and shattered the window panes with the rifle. So every time he shot at the glass, he would take a step farther away. And it was so he could see how accurate he would be at what distance. Like, he was really thinking. He was methodical as fuck. He always made his shot. He always nailed it. But the farther he got, the less accurate, of course. 
He also did this while everyone uh, uh, in Cherry Hill Farm was at church, so no one was really questioning why there were gunshots happening in the woods. And all of this gets us back to May 7th, 1827, when Jesse Strang shot and murdered John Whipple. And with that, let's take a quick break here. I will be back with uh, the rest of the murder. Was Jesse caught? We'll find out. Who's haunting the house? We'll find out. I'll be right back. Okay, we're back. So a coroner came to the house and brought John to an empty room where he did an autopsy. And within the day, the police were questioning everyone at the house. What they saw, who they suspected, motives, etc. Elise and Jesse didn't talk that entire day and only talked the following day in the presence of other family members. However... On the second day after the murder, Elise told Jesse in private, quote, they suspect you and me and talk of taking us up, unquote. Immediately after the conversation, the police took Jesse into custody. They questioned him more. And that is when Jesse found out that Elise told the police that she had slept with Jesse, but not that he had murdered John. Which, why would you say that? Elise is really trying, not my not only my patients, but I'm sure Jesse's and everybody else. Like, you don't need to tell the police that you slept with him. Like, that's crazy. That only puts you and you and him in hot water. Like, what are we doing? What are we doing? Because of that, Jesse immediately hired counsel, which is so smart. If you're listening to this, if you are ever talking to the police or suspected or whatever, get counsel. Get counsel. Keep your mouth shut. Get counsel. Jesse's father and stepmother visited him in jail. And that's when Jesse's lawyers discovered that Elise was the reason why Jesse was so quickly arrested, which made Jesse mad, rightfully so. And like, okay, hold on. So Elise went to the police and said, hey, we slept together. I don't know. He, I don't know if he killed John or not, but like, this is what's happening. Of course, the police are going to immediately suspect the Mr., why would you not? And in Jesse's, from Jesse's viewpoint, she asked him to murder her husband. So why would, you know, she's been claiming that she's been in love with him for so long. So why would, why would she out him like that? And like you and I, you and I know why we get it. But 
when you're in love, when you're in the moment of it, when you're enthralled with somebody, it's hard to understand and accept that they would just throw you under the bus like that. Now, John should be smart enough to know, hey, this love affair thing has only lasted, we've only known each other for six months, six, seven, whatever. Why would you ever trust her? Why would you ever trust Elise? Especially now. So she outed him. He was immediately arrested. There was no evidence. It's the early 1800s. There's no evidence. The police have no murder weapon. The police have no footprints, no fingerprints, no nothing. So it really is Elise's fault at this point. Jesse's pissed, he's in jail, and without thinking, without talking to his lawyers, he just pleads guilty to the jailer. And told him that even though he shot and murdered John, it was all Elise's idea. So Jesse comes clean. I s- still, not a good idea. Why are you making it easy for the police? You keep your mouth shut. Zip your lip. Zip it. <laughs> to quote the Real Housewives. I think it's of New York City. I think Sai says it. She's like, Z-. oh no, this is uh, <laughs> the Golden Bachelor. The Golden Bachelor. One of the, one of the bachelorettes uh, tells one of the other bachelorettes to zip it. And that's exactly what Jesse needs to do. Jesse needs to take a pointer from the, from a golden bachelorette and zip his lip. However, because John came clean and told the jailer that he was the murderer, the murderer, Elise was arrested a day later. Jesse stood trial. The district attorney, who was related to the Cherry Hill Farm, which these days would never fly, the district, ato- uh, the district attorney told Jesse, quote, You are guilty. You must be convicted. You must die, unquote, which is a little rough. I get it. I get the sentiment. I completely understand. But to look somebody in the face and say, you are guilty, you must die. Damn. Damn. And the judge called Jesse a serpent and fiend. Like, judges also have a lot of shit to say. Judges have a lot of shit to say. After the tr- after the trial, during, you know, where the district attorney, you know, should not have been trying this case, but he did, the jury deliberated for less than 15 minutes. Less than 15 minutes. Let me tell you, when I sat on a jury, my jury was not for a murder case. It was just a traffic accident. But when I sat on the jury, we barely got anything out in 15 minutes. We did initially do like a, okay, what does everybody think? Just to see where we started kind of moment. And that's probably what they did here. They probably went around the table. It's all men, right? And they're all just like, 
Okay, let's see where we're at. What do you think? And guilty, 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 all around. And if all 12 said guilty right off the bat, that's probably what happened. And they were probably like, great, we don't have to talk anymore. We all find him guilty. Done. Let's go home. So yes, Jesse was found guilty after less than 15 minutes. Elise stood trial three days later, but the trial didn't end up going anywhere and she was let go. Eventually, you know, white wealthy woman from New York, and at the time, people didn't believe women could murder, so she was let go. And Jesse was hanged in Albany in or on August 24th, 1827. And Jesse's hanging, his public hanging, was the last public hanging in Albany in 1827. So there's a little fun fact you can go tell your friends. In 1828, Elise remarried. Uh, but not long after, in 1832, she died at the age of 29 or 30. And no one knows for sure how she died, but it is thought she may have died due to a cholera ep- epidemic. And because she had smallpox in the past, it may have affected the cholera outbreak. Who knows? But 29 or 30, she died. That means when her husband was murdered, she was like 24, 25. Which means she was married for 10, 11 years to this man. Sorry to this man. But yeah, I mean, you know how I feel already. I don't believe in the death penalty, so I don't think Jesse should have died or murdered or whatever. But I also don't think he should have killed John Whipple. But I do re Elise should have gone to jail. Elise should have gone to jail. It's her. It was her idea. It was her fault. She start. She tried killing her husband first and couldn't do it. So then she pawned it off. Or she claims she tried. Maybe she never tried. Maybe she just told Jesse she tried poisoning her husband and it didn't work to get him to murder John. But maybe she never even tried. Which is, this is the first time I'm even thinking about that. Maybe she, the poison didn't even go into his system and she just lied from the moment she met him to the moment he died. This all took, this was all within a year. What a wild year. Jesse met this woman and then was publicly hanged within a year. Nuts. Nuts. Also, that second pair of socks that I was talking about earlier that uh, Jesse switched out, like the murder socks, those were under his pillow because Elise put them there. Elise was like, oh, you'll need clean socks, boots, whatever, so they can't be tracked back to you or whatever. So when you're out in the woods shooting the gun or whatever, I will slide some socks under your pillow and then go to church or whatever the case may be. So she actively had a role in this as well. Like she gave him the money for the gun. She provided him with clothes to not get caught she rolled the curtain in the bedroom so that Jesse had a clear shot of John. She had an 
active role in the murder of her husband, and she absolutely deserved to sit her ass in jail. Sneaky bitch. Okay. The Cherry Hill House was built in 1787 and remained in the Van Rensselaer family till 1963 when it was left in a will to, quote, the people of New York State, unquote. I don't know why you're leaving a house to an entire state or the people of that live in New York State, but work. And uh, the house became a museum after 1963. There are tours and award-winning educational programs. This year marks the house's 237th birthday. And she has been haunted for almost 200 years. Almost 200 years this house has been haunted. So it's probably not surprising who haunts Cherry Hill or who is thought to be haunting Cherry Hill. John Whipple. I believe John Whipple was the only person murdered in the house. But with that being said, there's been five generations who've lived in the house at one point. And they've all passed away at this point. So... I think John Whipple's the only person that's been murdered in the house, but that's not to say people haven't died in the house, other people haven't died in the house, or to say that they haven't had funerals in the house. The two rooms thought to be the most haunted are the, quote, murder room and the parlor room. The parlor room is basically a catch-all for everyone. You could read, listen to the radio, play games, etc. Basically like a family room today. But it was also used as the sick room for family members who were, well, sick. At least one family member died in the parlor room. We don't know what he died from. We don't know if it was a disease. We don't know if he had a heart attack. We don't know if it was old age. But he died in the parlor room. Now, the other room, the murder room, was uh, John Whipple's bedroom. So, of course, that's haunted by... John Whipple, or what people believe is John Whipple. Most of the time, the house remains calm and spiritless, but every so often, neighbors and visitors will see the silhouette or shadow of John standing in the window of the murder room or walking amongst the grounds. And I agree, if I was stuck in a house for the rest of my spirit life, I would walk around the grounds, get the fresh air, Peer out the window, see who's watching, see who's taking a tour. You're just a a curious spirit, a curious soul. Again, what else are you supposed to do? Especially if you're like stuck in the same time frame that you died. Like, we don't know what the ghost world's like, but if you die in 1827, are you stuck doing 1827 things? Like sewing? Or can you partake in things that are present day? Like, can a ghost that died in the 1600s play with a Game Boy and figure out how to use it? These are the questions I have. These are are the questions I'm posing to the world and I need answers. People also claim to have seen the ghost of Jesse haunting Gallows Hill in Albany, New York. 
30 to 40,000 people watch Jesse Strang hang. And every so often, you can see him wander the grounds to this day. So I think the grounds are just like a downtown area in Albany, and it's just very much not what it used to look like back then, obviously. But maybe you'll see Jesse wandering. Maybe you'll see John wandering. Who knows? But go take a tour of the house. Go check it out. Let me know. Email me what you think. Did you feel anything? Did you see a shadow? Did you hear anything? Did you smell anything? Use all your senses. Email me, hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Let me know because I need answers. I would love to take a tour and maybe I'll make my way up to Albany soon and take a little tour. I would sleep in the house. I've said I will, I'll sleep in a haunted hotel room. I will spend the night. I don't, I, not to say that these places are more haunted at night, but obviously, you know, with movies and books and media in general, it's always thought to be creepier at night, but I would do it. Why not? And with that, thank you all so much for listening. 2024 is going to be such a special year. I can feel it. And I hope you all accomplish everything your heart desires. If you liked this episode, please check the socials on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Go check them out for guest info, photos related to each episode, upcoming news, other special little things. If you have a paranormal encounter of your own you'd like me to share on the podcast, please email me at hauntedhometownspodcast at gmail.com. Could be anything from an Australian ghost reliving his death for eternity, yelling, Arnar, to your best friend, constantly telling you your future, even though you never asked. Let me know. And... I will meet you all back here in a couple weeks for another special. Actually, if the guest that's going to be on next episode is going to be on, you will not want to miss it. So please, please, please subscribe, follow, whatever you need to do. It's going to be amazing. And, and I'll see you all back then. Love you. Send me your emails because everyone loves a ghost story. The theme song is by Tyre. Go follow him on Instagram at Queer Popstar and go listen to his music on any streaming platform. That's T-H-A-I-R. The artwork for the podcast is by Pepe Munoz. Go follow him on social media at p.e.p.e.munoz, M-U-N-O-Z. Go buy his artwork. Go follow him on Instagram. He's incredible. I got my information from Wikipedia, Cornell University Library, historiccherryhill.com and the breeze 103.9